the, uh, you know, sorry about that. I'm, sometimes, don't you wish I'd just walk up here and say, let's pray and dismiss you? I mean, that was wonderful, wasn't it? I mean, that was just a wonderful moment for us. And uh, I'm hopeful that the Word of God will minister in the same way because those were words that reflect what His Word says. And so let's pray and then we'll talk about what God has for us from Scripture. Father, thank you so much for the way that you're able to move our hearts with music. And Father, we ask that your Spirit take the words from your scripture, and move our hearts in the same way. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. With these words, you are to embark upon the great crusade towards which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with me. With these words, Dwight Eisenhower launched the D-Day invasion. It was a much longer speech. That's just the opening couple of sentences. And it was a long, appropriately given speech. And that's usually the way that it is when you are about to embark on something, whether it be a sporting moment where the coach gives you that inspirational speech, or in battle, there is that long and a little bit more flowery explanation of what's at stake and what's going on. But once the troubles begin and the struggles begin to happen or the fight is on, the long speeches aren't needed anymore. Instead, you need the more concise statements that tell you what the next step is, what you should do, kind of a a more adequate way of delivering important messages and important meaning in a very quick way. Uh, Last week in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, Jeff talked about the inevitability of suffering. It's coming. For some of you, you're already there. And then when we get into 1 Peter chapter 5, the, uh, Peter writes about how to handle that suffering. And we're in it. And so now he gives us these kind of sharp, concise statements. Uh, he writes in the imperative tense 34 times in his book. 34 imperatives, 34 commands. And then when we get to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 9, he uses those imperatives seven times. So seven out of the 34 times are just in these few verses. And he writes these to to get us to understand there are requirements for us in order for us to survive the suffering that we are in or about to experience. So this morning, if you would take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 9, we will learn four requirements for handling the suffering in life. Four requirements for handling the suffering in life. The first requirement is found in verse 5. He writes this in verse 5. He says, Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Verse 5, the first requirement is submit to one another. Submit to one another. He starts the verse by saying, in the same way. Now, what he's talking about is what he said in verses 1 through 4 about elders, pastors, and shepherds. He told the elders, pastors, and shepherds, he says that you need to be willing and serve willingly. You need to be an example. He says that you need to be alive to the reality that Christ is coming back. So with those things in mind, he then talks to the younger ones. He's not talking about an office. 
He's talking about an age. He's saying, those of you that are younger, submit yourselves. You who are younger. You see, what he was afraid of is that the youth sometimes have a tendency towards self-assertion. The young people, they have a tendency to, to try to put themselves forward and first so that they can prove themselves more quickly. You say, well, I'm offended by that. That's really not true. Well, you're probably one of the younger that feel that way, right? You're, you're, you're not being minimized. He's not saying you aren't important. He's just saying you need to understand that there are some things that happen because of your age. Now, he's not automatically saying because you're younger, you're disqualified. Neither is he saying just because you're older, you're mature. I mean, you and I both know older people that are immature. But what he's saying is, specifically, he's trying to send a message to the younger people, those that aren't elders, pastors, and shepherds. He's saying you need to understand that there is something that you need to do. And he says in verse 5, he says, Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. Be submissive. And as though he, he kind of maybe catches himself, he says, uh, to those who are older. And then he says, all of you, all of you. He's talking about young people being submissive. But he says, you know, all of you need to be aware of this. This is something that's important for all of us. But, you know, this idea of submission is on Peter's mind. He uses it several different times. In First Peter chapter 2, verse 13, he says that we're, submit, we're supposed to submit to the government. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, he says we're supposed to submit to our employer. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he talks about submitting to your husband. So this idea of submission is on his mind. And submission is nothing more than setting yourself underneath someone or setting yourself underneath something. It's a literal thing. You know, if you are to submit, you are allowing yourself to, to come under someone else and to share in someone else. Um, my family and I, we went to a sporting goods store in Minnesota. And I was looking at uh, kayaks. And I said to the guy, I said, um, do you sell very many of these tandem kayaks, you know, two-person kayaks? And he goes, oh, that's the divorce boat. And I said, oh, the divorce boat. And he says, yeah, he says, most of the people that get that are married, and they aren't by the end of the trip. <laughs> because what happens when you're in a two-person kayak? You have to submit to one another, Right. You put yourself under each other. My wife and I were talking and joking about, uh, because there was a wedding coming up, and we were, we were talking about premarital counseling. And we agreed that premarital counseling, you should either put someone in a kayak together and see if they can survive that, or get them to wallpaper together. See if they can submit to each other, you know? Because that's what it's all about. It's not like a, I'm the only one that's submitting. It's, it's a mutual submission of understanding that there are things that you have and abilities that you have and gifts that God has given to you, and so I submit to them. And Peter is saying, if you want to survive when suffering comes, you may need someone. And so you need to submit yourselves. Submit yourselves. Put yourself under. In Philippians chapter 2, he talks about, uh, Peter, Paul talks about this, with, uh, about Christ. He says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. The first requirement of surviving suffering is submit to one another. Then notice what he says. The second requirement is found in verse 5 as well. He says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. 
One of the things that we, we, we hopefully are grasping as we go through this is that Peter doesn't want you to, to do these things by yourself. Peter is not saying, you know, hopefully you can make it, you're on your own. You notice how he uses this one another, the idea of a community, an idea of there are others involved with you. And so he's saying here, he says, suit yourselves with humility. That's the second requirement. He says, suit yourselves with humility. It's the idea of taking uh, the long flowing robes that they have and taking them up and tying them in a knot so that you can act as a servant. Remember the image of Jesus when he was with his disciples? It's in John chapter 13. And, and what happens is no one washed anyone's feet when they came in, as was the custom. And then as the, the meal progressed on, Jesus took his garment and tied up his garment and got a water and basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. I'm sure that's what Peter's picturing here. He's picturing Jesus Christ, the one who he knows is the Son of God and the Lord of Lords, clothed himself with humility and served his disciples. And so Peter is saying, take your apron and tie it up so that you can be a servant so that you can be a, a servant. And, and when we use this word humility or being humble, sometimes there's this, this uh, negative self kind of abandonment or this idea that uh, I'm resigned to groveling and being this, you know, I, I don't look you in the eyes and I keep my head down and, you know, I'm being humble before God. That's nothing about what Peter is talking Jesus Christ, when he took himself and put that apron on, he did not do so apologetically. He did so as an understanding of serving and giving. It was an act that he wasn't apologizing to. He revealed that he had the ability to submit himself to others and to take orders and to accept other arrangements that are around. You see, oftentimes the reason why humility is absent is because we want to control everything. We want everything to be our own way. And so humility doesn't factor into the equation. In fact, sometimes humility is looked upon as a weakness. There's something wrong with you. There's something wrong that you would serve someone else. And, and, and again, when we use the word service, sometimes what, what pops into your mind is you think, well, you know, that's me working somewhere else. Uh, let's talk about it just in your relationships with the people that are sitting next to you. Serving them, being humble to them, sharing humility, having this, this mindset. You say, well, why do we have humility? Well, the reason is because of what Peter says in verse 5. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. This idea of opposes is, is God setting himself up in battle against those who are proud. Uh, I work with a, a teacher, and uh, that teacher says that, Everyone's kryptonite is pride, is pride. The pride that says, you know what, I really shouldn't have to listen to you. The pride that says, you know what, I know what's best for me. When in reality, God knows what's been best for you. You see, he resists the proud. He arrays himself in battle against them because they are opposing him. And so he stands against them. And the word here for proud is two different words. It's, it's a word that means uh, above and show. So it's the idea of to show yourself above everyone else. That's what pride is. You see, if you are prideful, you see yourself as that 8 by 10 color glossy, and everyone else is the black and white wallet, right? You see yourself as, and you make it a point of reminding people, 
that you're better than they are. You let them know you're the smartest person in the room, not them. It's that pride to show above. And Peter says, no, you want humility, but the reason for that is because God shows favor. He gives grace. And he uses the word humble, which is the idea of low-lying ones, those ones that have come under the, the understanding of God's grace and mercy. You see, I am what I am because of the grace of God. There is nothing about me. When I reach and pull my own bootstraps off, I have no boots. <laughs> I have nothing without God in his grace giving me what he wants. There is an understanding that God gives grace to the po- proud, I mean to the humble, and he shares that grace with them. And look what he says in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. <clears throat> what he talks about humility there, it's not a passive resignation. You know, okay, okay, God, do whatever you will. It's an active cooperation. It's saying, you know what, God, you're able and capable, and I submit myself to you because I know I can't do it. I can't do it. I know you can, but I can't. It's like a a surgeon. If there's something wrong with you, what do you do to the surgeon? You put yourself under the surgeon's ability, under the surgeon's scalpel. Imagine if you would sit up and take the scalpel from the surgeon's hand and say, don't worry, I've got this. That's what a prideful person does. A prideful person says, I can handle this. I don't need you. But unlike a surgeon, God does not sedate us. He leaves us to actively say, you know what? I want to be under your scalpel. I want to be in your hand, dear Lord. I want to submit myself to you. He says, submit yourself under the mighty hand of God. It is only used here in the New Testament, but it's used in the Old Testament in Exodus. In Exodus, remember the children of Israel were under the oppressive rule of the Egyptians. And it wasn't until they came to this understanding, you know what? We need to submit ourselves to the mighty hand of God. And they sacrificed and put the blood on the doorpost. And they said, we're yours, God, and we place ourselves under you. Deliverance came. It's the same idea of Joseph. Remember Joseph? What a horrific amount of suffering he went through. His brothers abused him. His brothers threw him into the pit. They sold him into slavery. He was falsely accused multiple times and was in prison. And then when he came out, he was second in command and ruling Egypt, and his brothers show up. And instead of pridefully saying, look what I've accomplished, he says to his brothers, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's the mighty hand of God. That's saying, you know what, I'm going to submit myself, place myself under what it is that God has for me. There's no resentment. There's no rebellion over the events of life because we know God has a plan. God has a plan. Can we pause for just a moment and remember that most of the times what happens is we forget that God is in control. We forget that God has a plan. And that forgetfulness leads us to this puffiness that says, I can do this. I can figure this out. Instead of saying, you know what? This is tough. I can't handle this. God, you do it for me. I will on occasion cook something. One of the things that I love is cornbread. I love cornbread. The problem is, however, I cannot make cornbread. My cornbread is not good. It's either, you know, cornbread has to have kind of a a break apart about it, you know, cornbread, unless it's not, and then that's cake, you know. Cornbread has to have that breakability or whatever it is. And my mother makes the best cornbread in the world. 
and I will go to her house and she will make cornbread for me. And she will mix it and put it into the iron skillet and into the oven. And I will stand by the oven and say, okay, is it time? Is it, can we get this out? And my mother, who has been there, done that hundreds of times, says, relax. It will be done soon. And she knows the exact time to take it out of the oven so that it's the best that it can be. Because she knows her experience leads her to that. It's the same reason and same way that God deals with us. As we are in the suffering and as we are struggling with things, he says, humble yourselves. Put yourself under what God has. You see, there is a reason why God is the one that says to you, well done. Because he knows what temperature and how long you need to be in that oven. Humble yourselves. Uh, Suit yourself in humility is what he asks of us. Now, notice the other thing here. Peter is writing in an order. Uh, He has given us verse 5. He has given us verse 6. And then he takes us to verse 7. So there is an order. It's very purposeful. Look at verse 7 and see the third requirement for surviving the suffering. In verse 7, he says, cast all your anxieties on him. Verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him. So we are to submit, we are to suit up, and we are to set aside. Set your anxieties on God. There's an effort here. Now, the, the word cast is, I don't want to say an, an unfortunate interpretation, because it makes me sound like I'm smarter than the guys who wrote this. But if you can really picture in your mind what this literally means, it's the idea of taking something off and, and putting it on a chair. You know, it's like when you you come home at night, you take off your coat and you put it on a chair or you hang it on a hook. That doesn't strike me as casting. You know, that strikes me as taking it. It's also used as taking your burden and kind of weighing your burden and then putting it on a horse or a, a an ox for them to carry that burden. So it's it's a little different. You know, when you think of casting, you're thinking sometimes of throwing, and it's a little more thoughtful. It's a little more deliberative to take what it is that you have, these anxieties, and set them on God. Cast all your cares on him. Cast your anxiety on him. This idea of anxiety is to be drawn in several different directions. I have one son that lives at home with me, and I think he's pretty busy. And so those of you with 15 or 20 kids, I don't know how you do it. Because you're drawn in so many different directions. Or or some of you, you know, you have multiple families as a result of relationship difficulties. And you're pulled in different directions. Some of you, uh, you know, you work jobs. And when you get to that job, you're the man at that job. And you are pulled in different directions. Or or you find yourself in, in a situation in life where, you know, you thought, well, I've got it now. It's kind of time to just settle back. And then you find yourself pulled in all these directions. That's the anxiety that he's talking about. He's talking about being pulled in so many different directions. Uh, Now, we know that we can't just throw away the trouble. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying throw away the trouble. But he is saying that we are to allow the anxieties to rest upon God. In Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, it says, uh, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. You see what he's saying? 
if your thoughts are on God and trusting in what God can do, then all of a sudden it kind of pulls those things back in so that you can see it's being handled, it's being taken care of. So I'm not spread all over the place and pulled in every direction because God has it under control. And it says, casting all your care or cast all your anxiety on him. Why him? Well, the why him is explained right there in, in the verse as well. He says, uh, casting, uh, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. Now, why does he care for you? Why does he care for you? Well, the reason is because you're his. You're his. Remember, Peter is addressing believers. Peter is addressing those who have come to an understanding that they are sinners that need to be saved through Jesus Christ. And as a result of that relationship, they are now sons of God. And so God cares for us because that's what a father does to his children. That's what a father does to his son and to his daughter. That's what God does. He cares. You see, he cares for us so much so that when we trust in him, we don't have to care. Because he's doing the caring. There's an old hymn that goes like this. Be not dismayed, whate'er betide. God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love abide. God will take care of you. God will take care of you through every day or all the way. He will take care of you. God will take care of you. Peter knew about God taking care of him, didn't he? Remember Peter had a mother-in-law that was sick and God healed her. Remember, it was Peter who was in the storm with his other disciples, and they're in the boat, and Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat, and the storm comes up so much so that the disciples race to the back of the boat, and they shake Jesus and say, don't you care? And what did Jesus do? He stands up and calms the waters. Peter knew troubles and sufferings, and he knew that God cared. Peter had no fish, and he went fishing with Jesus, and Jesus said, put it on the other side, and they caught a great catch of fish. Peter knew that God cared for him. It was Peter who had no money to pay his taxes, and Jesus said, well, go fishing. And uh, he caught a fish, and inside the fish was enough to pay his taxes. So Peter knew that God cares. You see, the issue normally isn't, does God care? The issue is, have you embraced the reality that God cares? Have you come to the understanding that God cares for you, that he loves you? You see, he has loved you so much that he gave his only son to give you the gift of salvation. And he has also given you the opportunity with the spirit of God inside of you to continue to work in you until the day that he takes you home to glory. You see, he cares for you. The problem isn't, does he? The problem is, do you know that? So this morning, as we go through suffering, we set our anxieties on God. And please notice the final thing that he suggests and commands for us to do is found in verse 8. In verse 8, he says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. The fourth requirement that he gives is he says, seriously watch for the devil. Seriously watch for the devil. Now, let's, before we launch into this point, I think what's happening here is Peter, perhaps fearing a kind of let go and let God mentality, 
You know, we read in the previous verse, God cares. Okay, here we go, right? Let it go, and I'm off and running. God can take care of the rest. But kind of fearing that, he says, you know what? You need to understand that there's something more to this. You've got to do something. Peter gave us verse 7 to make us carefree, not careless. <laughs> and so what he does is he helps us to see that the, the strong confidence in God is not to justify indulgence and carelessness. It's like the story of Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell, the great Protestant leader, was, was about to cross a river over into Ireland and fight the Irish. And as he was um, marshalling his troops, he, he waded into the water with his ho- horse and he gives this rousing speech of, of conquering and taking. And he concluded with, uh, allegedly, the words, you know, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry, right? Well, this section of what, First Peter, is talking, what Peter is talking about, this is the keep your powder dry part. Uh, we're going to trust in what God can do, but I'm going to have my gun ready in case I need that kind of a thing. And so what he says here is he says you need to resist the devil. You need to uh, be self-controlled and alert, sober and awake, alert to the reality of the devil. Uh, he he kind of mixes some metaphors here because the way that he describes this, he says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, and what that literally means is your adversary in a court of law, in a lawsuit. So someone has brought a case against you, and then he says, the devil. And so he kind of mixes it up here. But the point is, in order for us to understand this, is we need to be alert and awake to the reality that the devil is alive and well. Alert and awake to the reality that there is a devil. Paul wrote about it in Ephesians chapter 6. James wrote about it in James chapter 4. They talk about resisting the devil. It is a reality. And so be alive and alert to it. Be alive and alert to that reality. I don't want to offend anyone, but sometimes what has happened with 21st century gospel and, and presentation is we have been so quick to try to make it palatable and acceptable to everyone else that we forget about hell and we don't talk about it. Or we say, oh, hell, I don't know if that's real. Hell is real. And then the devil, oh, the devil, oh, you're just, you know, just trying to scare us. No, there is a reality of the devil. And I'm not talking about, you know, the old, some of you, are you old enough to remember Flip Wilson and his The Devil Made Me Do It? That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the reality of understanding that there is a spiritual battle around us. There is a spiritual warfare that we need to be alert and awake to that reality. We can't allow ourselves to be lulled to sleep by a culture that says, okay, it's okay, don't worry. It's just people acting up. It's just the way people are. It's not. There are spiritual battles that are going on, and we must be alert and awake to those. And he's saying, you need to do that. Resist him. Resist him. Remember the, the, the word that we, we used about God opposing the proud? It's the same idea. We are marshalling our forces. We are marshalling ourselves against the devil to resist him. We don't want to mess around with that. We don't want to welcome him in and be, be like, okay, we'll win him over through friendship. It's not like that. We are marshalling ourselves. We are at war with him. And he uses this uh, in verse uh, 8. He says, uh, verse 9, resist him standing firm in the faith. It's a flint-like resolution. He uses standing firm, the idea of a rock. Who was the rock? Well, Peter was the rock. Did Peter know about the devil? Absolutely he did. Because remember, it was Jesus that said to Peter, he said to Peter, he said, the devil's going to sift you. 
and before the night is over, you will have denied me three different times. So Peter knew the reality of the devil, and he says, you need to stand firm in your faith. And when he uses the word faith, he's not talking about, I believe, I believe, I'm trusting. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about your doctrine, your Christian faith, what you believe. And so he's saying you need to be standing firm in that faith. Now, the devil is the counterfeiter, right? He's the slanderer. So how do we combat counterfeits? We combat them by studying the truth. That's why it's so important for us to be a part of reading and understanding what the Word of God says. Because it is the truth that allows us to resist him, to stand firm, to keep from submitting and allowing him to have control in our lives. He says to us, he says, stand firm in the faith. And then he finishes out by saying, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. Now, Peter does not say that so that we have this kind of misery loves company mentality. He tells us that for two reasons. One, we're not alone. What you are going through and the struggles that are yours are not unique. They may be unique in the sense that they're yours, but they're not unique. Everyone at some point goes through suffering. And the second thing is to try to understand and grasp the reality that there is something going on beyond themselves. The people around the world are experiencing troubles, and, and, and so you need to be alert and aware of what the devil can do. You know, we, we are here today and marvelously enjoying the, the, the rain and the freshness that it brings, the opportunity to listen to great music and to share the Word of God openly and just, you know, stand up here and share that without anyone being afraid. At least I'm not, unless I say something wrong. Maybe Jeff will take me down. But I'm not afraid of people breaking the doors down and saying, you guys are done, we're arresting you and taking you out of here. It was, there's none of that. But then we think of our, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ in Iraq who are experiencing the ISIS and ISIL kind of... I mean, it's just incredible to see the things that are there and for us to be reminded of the reality that the devil is alive and well and he has this plan to do whatever he can to sabotage and bring down the kingdom of God. There is suffering. There are troubles. There, is, there are battles that we will face. And Peter, in a very concise and genuine way, he says to us, you need to submit, you need to suit yourselves, you need to set your anxieties, and you need to seriously consider the devil is real. This morning, we stand against the things that are contrary to God by understanding what it is that his word tells us to do. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these that have come this morning. Father, we are... Even more thankful, however, for you being here and for you having your spirit with us who is able to take the words of your scripture and put them into our hearts. And Lord, we ask that as we move from here to our next place, that we would be reminded of what the word of God says to us. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.